Genesis 12, 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The first 11 chapters of Genesis cover 2,000 years. That's how far we've gone this fall. It's pretty remarkable. 2,000 years. Some of you are saying, I can't believe it's Christmas again. Well, we've traveled 2,000 years. And the universal creation and history of every tribe and tongue and nation, we've looked at that. Briefly, albeit, but we have looked at it. The next 39 chapters of the book of Genesis will span just 350 years. So we really slow up as we enter into the story of a peculiar chosen people. Beginning with the account of a man who heard God and he followed. That's the remarkable thing about Abram. He heard God and he followed. I want to tell you before we touch any of this, people do hear from God. He does speak to his people. He, he does interact with human beings. This is not a weird thing. Sometimes, as with Abram here, he's going to speak straight. You're going to hear him. I'm absolutely convinced of that. I have heard God. And so I believe that he will speak directly. I also believe most of the time he doesn't. Most of the time he's going to speak to you through his word or through another believer or through circumstances in your life. He's going to give direction. But however he does it, he does it two ways. He does it, number one, to increase faith. And he does it, number two, because he loves you. He loves you. Can you... Just grasp that one concept this morning that Jesus Christ loves you and cares enough about you that he's not cold and distant and aloof and just looking the other way while you stumble through life. He's engaged, he's aware, he knows what's going on with you and he will speak to you if you will listen. As he spoke to Abram and Abram heard and again did a very simple thing. God said, go forth. And Abram said, okay. And he went forth. Matthew chapter 1 verse 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And I think if Abraham hadn't gone forth, what about the entire history of Israel? Not to mention the history of the world. What would have happened if this one man had gone, was that really God? Not so sure. I'll just stay where I am. Abraham heard and he went forth. He's not a perfect man by any stretch. And we'll see that. But you could call Abram a good friend. God did. Isaiah 41, verse 8, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, did not you, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. Forever. 
You know what's so wonderful about all these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is we don't just talk about them in the past tense. We're gonna look at the history of Abraham, but Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty one regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you and me. This is not a God who is only concerned with your past. He has your present and he has your future in mind as well. Matthew chapter eight, verse 11, Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And I plan to be at that table. More than any other table this holiday season, that's the table that I would like to dine at. I mean, can you even imagine that dinner party? Abraham, could you please pass the salt? <laughs> More potatoes, Isaac? <laughs> Jacob, did you hear the one about the wrestling match? I mean, you know, having those conversations. And people talk about forever friends. Abraham is one. He took God at his word. He just trusted him. That's what friends do. That's probably the single greatest definition of friendship is one who trusts another. And so Abram trusts God. Abraham would be a sojourner in a land promised, but not yet his own. In fact, the Bible tells us he did not receive what was promised. He was told of the promise, he was shown the promise, but he didn't receive it in his entire lifetime. In fact, Abraham never owned property except for a burial cave in Hebron. I've been there. Wow, that, I, maybe I'll tell you that story further in as we talk about that cave at Machpelah. But this cave that he purchased, it looks out on the promised land. So the only property he ever owned was that cave. Why? So that in his re resurrection, Abraham can step right out the entrance of that cave and onto his front yard, receiving the promise, which is out ahead of him, which God guaranteed. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says, By faith, Abram, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Note that. He had received the promises. He just hadn't received what was promised. He heard what God promised. He just hadn't received the actual thing yet. And he said, or it says, it was said of him in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And so Abraham considered that God is able to raise even from the dead from which he also received Isaac back as a type. So the Bible calls Abraham the father of all who believe because he believed God, because he trusted. Even to the point of the sacrifice of his son, a story that is yet ahead of us, he trusted that, well, if I have to sacrifice Isaac, but all of my descendants are gonna come through Isaac, God's gonna just raise him from the dead. Could be a little painful. He might have a little scar on his chest. But God will raise him. If you ever wonder why Abraham was willing to go through with that sacrifice, it's because he trusted God to bring Isaac back. Father of all who believe, Romans chapter four, verse three. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And I love this, it was credited to him as righteousness. You realize that's your deal and mine. You have a credit of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. 
which now becomes our righteousness because of Jesus Christ. But before Jesus came and before the cross and before the purchase that his blood made, anyone who believed could only have a credit, a coupon, if you will. And Abraham was one. A promise that he would be righteous. Why? Because he believed God. He received the sign of circumcision, Romans 4.11, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be a father of all who believe, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Think about this. Abraham never went to church. Not a day in his life. Never went to synagogue. He just heard God and believed him. And he saw Jesus. What? You just told us Jesus hadn't come yet, exactly. And Abraham saw him. John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and was glad. <laughs> I just love Jesus. I can't imagine being in that conversation and being one of the Pharisees as Jesus said that. Oh, yeah, Abraham and I, we were hanging out one day. What? And, of course, they reply, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abram was born, I am. So you got some Pharisees going, I am. That's just bad English. And you have other Pharisees going, wait a minute, no, he just said Yahweh. He's claiming to be God. By the way, we don't talk about Jesus in the past tense either, do we? It's always him right now, right here, right among us. When we talk about Jesus, we're not just looking back Oh, yeah, that Jesus of the past, the Jesus in Bethlehem who was born, the Jesus who walked in the Galilee, the Jesus who was crucified. Tragic story, that, that Jesus from back there. Uh -uh. He's right here. And he's coming. And we have a present and a future with him. But for all this, one of the strangest things about this man, Abram, called by God, was that Abraham was called a pagan. He was called a pagan. That is, he was a pagan when he was called. When God reached out to him, when God called his name and said, I want you to do this, Abram was a pagan. Jewish tradition teaches that Abram's father, Terach, was originally from Haran. Haran was Aramean Syria. So Syria today, that region, that's where Tarak apparently was born, but from there he moved 600 miles southeast down the Euphrates to the southwest side of the Euphrates River to a place called Ur. In fact, if you look back in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, it says these are the records of the generations of Tarak. This is the toldot of Tarak. Tarak became the father of Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terach in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now the land of his birth refers to the birth of Haran, the son of Terach. So Haran was born in Ur of the Chaldeans. Terach's sons were born in Ur, but Terach himself, again, based on Jewish tradition, was born up in Haran, but had moved south. He apparently named his son Haran after his homeland, Haran. But his son Haran died down in Ur of the Chaldees. Now Ur was probably named 
after the confusion of Babel and may have been named Ur because the people could only say Ur right down next to the towns of Duh and Dolp. I think that was that region there. But verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. See, I just say those things to make sure you're tracking. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka. A scant three centuries after the flood, Mesopotamia, from Nineveh to Babylon, from Haran to Hur, was as pagan as the moon is full. A sin-soaked region already. And part of how we know that is that paganism has long worshipped the moon. The moon has always been that, that symbol in the sky that the pagan would, would worship, look up and see, and whoa, there's, there's something, there's a face in that moon, right? They called that face sin, ironically. Sin was the name of the moon god, the, the Akkadian moon god was called Sin. The name Sarai comes from the Akkadian name Sharate, which is the wife of the moon god Sin. No wonder the Lord changes her name from Sarai to Sarah, the proper Hebrew phraseology of princess. I like that. And then Nahor's wife, Milcah, her name is from Malkatu, which is the royal title of the moon god's daughter, Ishtar. These are all pagan names, and they're all pagan interrelated. Nahor himself, one of the sons of Terach, would have a grandson that we're going to meet later along the line, a guy by the name of Laban. Remember Laban? Laban's name means white, and it's not because he was Caucasian. He's named white because that's a poetic word used in the worship of the full moon. So these were all pagan names, and paganism was embedded in Abram's family line. By the way, there's still a false god worshipped in this same region today. Originally the moon god in the pantheon of 360 tribal deities, and his symbol was the crescent moon. But Muhammad came along 600, 650 years after Jesus, and he sought to elevate the tribal god of, of his tribe. And so Allah became the false god of Islam. My point is this. Abram was born a pagan. He was pagan when he was called. Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, the Euphrates, namely Terach, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Why did God call a pagan? Why did he call Abram? That's just not how we do it. If you're going to call somebody, you're going to look for someone who's pretty together. If you want to start a church, you don't want to start it with someone like me. You want someone who knows what they're doing, right? Someone who has some background, some history, something they can put on the table. These are my papers, you know. Of course, that's what we do with dogs. These are his papers. Remember when we bought Reggie and they said, these are his papers. And I'm like, yeah, but will he use them? That's the question. <laughs> he didn't. 
Why did God call a man who was absolutely pagan? As far as that goes, why did, he God, did God call Moses or Samuel or David or, or Elijah? Why John the Baptist? Why any of the apostles? Why you? Why me? Why are we even here this morning? How does that work? How did I get here, Chris? I, <laughs> I don't know. I think back in my life to where I began to follow Jesus. And when I look back with older eyes than I had then, I see a kid who was a mess. Why? Why, Lord? When God sent Samuel to a ruddy, scruffy shepherd boy named David, there in the hills of Bethlehem, to be king of Israel... 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, Samuel goes and he begins to look at the, at the sons of Jesse and he looks at the oldest and he says, oh, he's tall, he's strapping. This, this is a kingly looking kid. And the Lord says, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, that might give some of you comfort, but not necessarily me, because I think, great, if the Lord looks at the heart, what chance have I got? Why would he call me looking right into my heart and aware of the things that I've done? Why would God, listen, hear this. God is not looking for people who have it together. He's not going out calling those who are clean and, and righteous and moral and good folks. Jesus and his disciples were digging into a meal with some pretty unsavory people, IRS agents, Social pariahs, Matthew 9, 11 says, when the Pharisees saw, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> but go and learn what this means, Jesus says. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Let me tell you something, Bridge family. God is not interested in our legalistic sacrifices. He is interested in our compassion. He has called us to be a compassionate people. The goal of our instruction is love, right? And to care for each other and to love each other. And we don't always do it well. We understand that. But that's the goal. That's the focus. That's why we're here. Not to uphold some kind of tradition or some legalistic tendency, but to show the love and the grace of God that's been shown to us because none of us should have been called. And yet we were. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so God wasn't looking for Mr. Righteous, and Abram wasn't. The Lord wasn't looking for Mr. Religious. And in that case, Abram was Mr. Religious. I mean, look how many gods he served. Look how many gods his family followed. I mean, if your religiosity is proven by numbers of gods then Abraham's family line was very religious. God wasn't looking for that. Who is God calling on? And we began to scrape the surface of this Wednesday night. He's calling on friends. God is looking for friends. Now, I know that kind of anthropomorphizes the Lord a bit, makes him sound somewhat human. It's human terminology that we're using there, but he is looking for friends. Oh, I don't mean in the way that we look for friends. I look for friends because I'm looking for companionship or understanding or support or some sense of fellowship. 
God was looking for a friend with whom he could be himself. Again, that sounds really human, doesn't it? Because I say that and I say, I'm looking for a friend with whom I can be myself, someone with whom I can let my hair down. Not hard to do these days. <laughs> but we all like people that we can be with and relax and just be who we are and not worry about what we say or how we're being. These are the people who know us. God was looking for someone with whom he could be himself and I'm talking about a relationship of trust and openness and faithfulness a genuine relationship, and in the deepest aspect of God's nature, it all comes down to love. God was just looking for a friend he could love. So God found a friend in Abram. James chapter two, verse 23 says, he was called the friend of God. But again, don't forget, Abram first heard this call to friendship in Ur, his pagan homeland. And so often that's exactly how we hear the call. You know, be, be encouraged. If you're here this morning, by faith in Jesus Christ, be encouraged. You heard the call in your pagan homeland. We came out of that. That's, that's how this works. It's always from our paganism that God calls us. And you might say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm no pagan. Well, maybe not now. Paganism, Merriam-Webster defines as a follower of a polytheistic religion and I dare say before I followed Jesus, there were all kinds of things I followed. All kinds of gods, if you will. All kinds of weird little beliefs that I had prior to really locking in and following after Jesus. But a pagan is also one who has little or no religion and who delights in sensual pleasures and material goods and irreligious or hedonistic person. Well, that was all of us before we found Jesus or before he found us. Before we were called into a friendship with God, again, I believed in a lot of false things before I believed in God. And Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, in other words, pagans. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why am I here this morning, God? And why did you call me Jesus? Because by grace, you have been saved. That's why we're here. Which is, again, very comforting because that is not of ourselves. It's what he does. First Peter 2.9, Peter says, but, but you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And I know, I still think, some of you still think, me? Yes, why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Why did God call me to praise his name? To worship him. He was looking for friends. And if you still haven't responded to his call, He's still looking for friends. Well, the Lord said to Abram, chapter 12, verse one, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, I want you to note this and maybe make marks in your Bible because we'll follow through on these in later studies, but this is the first of seven divine revelations from God to Abram. Exactly seven 
that we'll see in Genesis seven times where God will speak to or appear to Abram or ultimately Abraham. Note these. The first one is right here, the first revelation, the first three verses of chapter 12, and it's the first call. And in this first call, it came, note this, outside of the promised land. So the very first time God calls to Abram, he calls him when he's outside, which again is so much like the rest of us. First time he calls, we're outside. He calls us in. Doors open. Invitation is made. The second revelation is right down in verse 7 of this same chapter, which says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, To your descendants I will give this land. Now this is the first appearance inside the land. The second revelation, but the first appearance inside of the land. And then the third revelation, skip over to chapter 13, verse 14. Genesis 13, 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And this is the first visual promise of the land. Third revelation, first visual promise. I remember standing out on the edge of a hill in the mountains of Judea. We had gone to dinner at a place called Genesis Land, kind of the Disneyland of Israel, uh, <laughs> a little mini Disney. What the guy had done, an Australian who had moved to Israel and lives there, set up there on the top of a hill in Judea, beautiful location, a large tent called Abraham's Tent. And you go there and you have dinner. You know, tour groups will come in and have dinner there and they'll feed you and you sit around a low table on couches and, or on pillows like they would do. And, and he, Abraham comes in, couldn't believe it, it was him. I told you, he's not just past tense. <laughs> comes walking to us and, and talks to us and has his sons feed us dinner and everything. And it's marvelous. But the best thing about this place to me was after dinner, first time I was there, walking out of the tent and out to the edge of this hillside and looking down into this deep valley and all these rolling Judean hills. And I thought of this verse. And I thought what it must have been like to be Abram standing among the hills of Judea and God saying, check it out. It's all my promise to you. Everything that your eye can see. But not just from here, Abram. I want you to walk about the land. Go to the north. Go to the south. Go to the east. Go to the west. Walk all over the place. Everything your eyes see, I'm giving it to you. That's my promise. And it's only the third revelation. And then the fourth revelation is chapter 15, where God unilaterally cuts covenant with Abram to confirm the promise. That's called the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 15, fourth revelation. Then the fifth revelation is Genesis 17, verses 1 through 21. So the whole chapter, and the Lord there in Genesis 17 changes Abram's name finally to Abraham. We'll explain what that difference is and why. He establishes there in Genesis 17 the sign of circumcision, which is the perfect sign for God to give Abram because he's saying, okay, now, Abram, I'm calling you Abraham, and I'm giving you the sign of circumcision because through your seed, all will be blessed. That was the promise, right? What more precise and profound way for the Lord to give a sign to Abram than that? 
And then the sixth revelation, oh, by the way, in that revelation as well, not only is Abram changed to Abraham, but that's where Sarai, whose pagan name is changed to Sarah, the Hebrew name. My princess goes, my princess in terms of pagan goes to the princess of the Jewish people, Sarah. Well, that's chapter 17. Then comes the sixth revelation of God to Abraham, chapter 18, where again, God reiterates his covenant for the third time, promising through Isaac, your descendants will be named, and Sarah laughs. <laughs> he didn't look in the mirror like I did this morning. You know, she laughs and God says, why did Sarah laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, you did. Of course, they went on to name their son Isaac, which means laughter, perfect name for him. And God, in this sixth revelation, tells Abraham of the impending judgment that's about to befall Sodom and Gomorrah. In the seventh, and note this, it's the final revelation of God to Abraham, at least in the scriptures, at least that we have. There may have been more other conversations, but there's this number seven. And in this seventh revelation, it's Genesis 22 specifically verses 1 and 2 and 15 through 18, where the Lord sends Abraham and his beloved son, his only son, Isaac, up Mount Moriah to illustrate a stunning father-son offering. They go up Mount Moriah. It is a consummate picture in all of Scripture of the love of a father for his son. I've told you before, and I will repeat it again. It's the first time the word love is used in the Bible. When God says, take your son, your only son whom you love. Go up the mountain, I'm going to show you. Mount Moriah, same mountain where the cross was lifted up. I want you to go up there, and as a father, I want you to sacrifice your son. Why, Lord? Well, the picture is profound and obvious, because that's where the father would sacrifice his son. And that is the seventh and final revelation of God to Abraham illustrating this stunning father-son offering. The last time Abraham will hear from the Lord, at least, again, in the Hebrew scriptures, and if you note this, over in Genesis 22, verse 14, in that time, at that time, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided, and it was God provided a lamb. Oh, I'll just tell you this real quickly. If you don't know, they're going up the mountain. And Isaac said, here's wood for the fire. Where's the offering, Dad? Isaac may have been in his 30s at that time, by the way. Where's the offering, Dad? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. He'll provide a lamb. And they get up there, and Isaac is bound, and Abraham is about to commit this sacrifice. God stops him. And you know what they find in the thicket? A ram. A ram, not a lamb. There's a ram in the thicket. Well, Abraham must have gotten it wrong. He said, God will provide a lamb. He did provide a lamb. The little lamb slain, Jesus Christ, in that same place, the place of the seventh revelation of God to Abram, or Abraham at that time. Now, back to chapter 12. So those are the seven revelations. We'll see them as we go. We'll run across them as they, as they come before us. But in Genesis chapter 12, in this first revelation, 
And we're going to finish with these two things this morning. There are two imperatives that you need to note. Two imperatives. I believe imperatives that are the same today for followers of Jesus Christ. But these are two imperative statements that God makes to Abram. Two commands, if you will. And each one is followed by three promises. So he makes a command, gives three promises. Makes another command, gives three promises. And the first imperative is simply go forth. Go forth. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you the first imperative. Now I want you to get this, and you might write this in the margin of your Bible if you're reading an NASB or an NIV or an ESV. If you're reading the KJV, it's probably correct on this one. King James translation literally translates, now the Lord had said unto Abram, and then I like the rest of it, get thee out of thy country. <laughs> I'm going to use that with my kids. You know, I think on a sunny day where they're all watching TV, get thee out of the house. Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and from thy father's house. Now that's the King James translation. But the Hebrew phrase here, go forth, go forth, get thee out. Or in the NASB, go forth. It, it's two words in the Hebrew. It's lech lecha. And it has embedded in it, in fact, in the way that it's written in the Hebrew, it's not just go forth. It's go forth for yourself. It's go forth for your benefit. That's implied in the go forth. Go forth. This is for you. Go forth for your sake, we might say. And I find that Wonderful because the truth is there is always benefit and blessing when we go forth at the call of God. Always. There's always blessing ahead. God says go forth. We often as Christians, maybe it's just me, but I have a feeling you have felt this way too. We often think of going forth as self-sacrificial. You know, the Great Commission is really for us the Great Capitulation. I'll go. Okay, I'll go. It's going to be hard, but I'll go for you, Jesus. Listen, when God says go forth, it's not for the forfeiture of my desires for the greater good. I'll give up for God because he called me. I'll go forth. Jesus be praised. Given up all that I have established here. In my, but that's okay, Lord. It's all right. It's victimization for victory. <laughs> I'll do it for the common good. I once actually heard a brother say, and I've, and I've heard this type of thing many times before, but he said, he verbalized, if it's not hard, it must not be from the Lord. He had two decisions to make. Could go one way or go the other. One was very hard. The other actually was relatively easy. And I'm looking at the two and going, I think the easy one's the right one, but who am I? And he's like, yeah, but I think I need to choose the harder path because that's the one for the Lord. Right, because that's what God does. Hey, come be my friend. I'm going to mess you up. <laughs> Why do we think this way? I wouldn't do that to my kids. Get thee out of the house. Why? Because it's raining out there. 
get soaking wet and sick for all I care. That's not the way we think, but, but when it comes to God. Go forth, he says. There's benefit, there's blessing. I'm doing something good if you'll trust me. Okay. <laughs> what kind of friend is that who would send you out into hardship? Now, stay with me on this. But you go forth for your benefit and watch the benefit. I will make you a great nation, verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great. Three promises. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. Bummers, right? Go forth and I'm going to do these things. All right. I mean, I guess if you got to make me into a great nation, whatever. I guess if you want to bless me or make my name great, okay, I'll go forth. What a tragic trail of tears for this poor sap. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, I think expresses the Father's heart. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Go forth. Okay. It's for blessing. We are called for blessing. We are called to go forth to be blessed. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that following Jesus is always a cakewalk. No, I'm not saying there won't be high mountains and difficult trails and cuts and scrapes and bruises and loss along the way. I know that's going to happen. But you got two choices here. You can go forth in the name of the Lord and face those hardships, or you can go forth on your own and face hardships. See, that's one thing that's not different between followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus. Everyone has a hard time in life at some point. Everyone's going to struggle at some point. Everyone's going to have difficulties. Well, not rich people like, oh, I don't know, like Donald Trump. I would not trade places with him right now if you paid me. And if I did, I would get rid of Twitter. I'm just saying. <laughs> but it's so easy to look at other people and go, well, that guy's doing great. Well, he's sailing along. She's just fine. Uh, probably not. Maybe on the surface. But Christians and non-Christians alike are going to have troubles. The question is, are you going to face them with Jesus? Are you going to face them all on your own? But he also promises that when we go forth in his name, whether the mountain passes high or the seas be deep or the rivers be seemingly unfordable, when we go forth in his name, there is blessing. He promises that. That's not prosperity gospel, by the way. That's just the nature of God. He is a God of all grace. He is a God who loves to give spiritual blessing. And tr listen, trusting in the Lord always results in blessing. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, yeah, well, my life isn't blessed, then my suggestion to you gently is you need to work on thankfulness because you've got more to be thankful for than you're realizing. If you're wallowing in victimization, stop and thank God for what is good. And ask him to elevate and increase your faith because there's more coming. There's something coming you can't even imagine right now in terms of blessing. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 51. Verse one says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. 
Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Hey, if you follow the Lord, look to Abraham. How so? Just do what he did. God said, go forth, and he went forth. So go forth. Have that faith. Trust that when God says, I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to bless you, he's going to do it. Let me ask you, from our vantage point in 2019, was Abraham multiplied? Across generations, across the years, thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon millions of people came through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. He's a God of blessing. And trusting him always results in being blessed. Yes, there may be sacrifice in going forth, but it is joyful sacrifice. I've had people say to me, well, Rick, when you, when you all started the bridge, that, that must have been hard. No, it, it wasn't. It, now, I wouldn't have said so then because I wanted to get paid, but it was not. <laughs> it was not difficult. Cheryl can tell you this as well. The easiest faith decision that we have ever made in our lives was the first Bible study of this fellowship. It was, absolutely, it was a no-brainer. And there was no building, and there was no plan of attack. The whole thing came together within one month. There was no training for how do you plant a church. It was like Abraham. And what's funny is we started this, this fellowship in Genesis and I remember coming to this point, reading about Abram and going, hey, that's me. <laughs> I can go forth from the land of Ur. Because <laughs> that's where I came from. Would you be willing to start on church on North Whidbey Island? Ur, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so you go forth. And it truly, it truly was absolutely easy. I, I kept wondering, should it have been harder? It's not to say there wasn't some pain when this child was born. <laughs> but it was absolutely the easiest thing. So yeah, there may be some sacrifice in going forth. Abram is gonna know sacrifice later on. But as we go forth in God's promises, listen, God's blessing comes, but you know what else comes? He goes to work on our hearts. When we go forth, he goes to work. First Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. I know many of us would be good with just a little sanctification. Just give me enough and I'm fine. No, no. He's going to sanctify you entirely. Your spirit and soul and body, Paul says, may they be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And he also will bring it to pass. So go forth. Blessing is guaranteed. It will come. And you will be sanctified. Go forth. But note this also that the imperative to go forth was something that the Lord, King James gets it right, the Lord had said to Abram. That's important to note so that you don't get all confused here. When did the Lord tell Abram to go forth? Was it after Terach died in Haran, verse 32 of chapter 11? No. No, we get the toldot of Terach at the end of chapter 11, but then once that toldot is given, that, that what became of that generational line is given, now we turn to the one son 
to Abram. But when did God say, go forth? Well, the Lord had said, go forth. Had said. It's the imperfect tense, and it implies a, a process preliminary to its completion. So had said is, is had said, the Lord had said. What does that mean? I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let the disciple Stephen explain it to you. Acts chapter seven, verse two, just note this and listen. Stephen is standing up before the Jewish council and the high priest throws a, a challenge at him and Stephen launches into the most brilliant sermon. You should read it in Acts chapter seven, study it, it's, it's wonderful. But he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So when he was down in Ur, that's when God called, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. Get this, understand, verse 31 of Genesis chapter 11 says, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. They settled there. What had God previously told Abram Chapter 12, verse one, he said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Instead, after hearing the call, what did Abram do? He let his father lead him. Not his father, but his dad. He let Tarak lead the charge out of Ur. He let Pops take the lead. And what did Tarak do? Well, like any good father, he brought along Abram, and he brought along Lot, Abram's nephew, who could go by the name ibuprofen because he's such a headache. <laughs> and apparently, Tarak went on the excuse of Abram's divine, strange, bizarre little calling. Oh, you heard from a God that we're supposed to leave? Oh, that's a good enough reason. Let's go. And off Tarak leads, and Abram and Sarai and Lot follow along after. They set out for Canaan, we're told. And Tarak got as far as Haran, again, back up to his homeland, and what'd he do? He settled. Stopped right there. By the way, if you look on a map, from Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran is about a 600-mile journey north. Canaan was a 600-mile journey from Ur west. You know what this is like? It's like saying, we're driving to Billings, Montana by way of Sacramento, California. <laughs> yeah, it's on the way. We'll just swing down to Sacramento and then head on over. I looked it up. It's about 600 miles down to Sacramento, 600 miles out to Billings. I have a lot of free time. I look things like this up. But I discovered, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, let's go to the land that God's going to show, to Canaan's land, up to Haran. Why? Because... Tarak led the way. Tarak's name means delay. <laughs> it can also mean wandering spirit, but it's either wandering spirit or 
delay, I kid you not. And note this in verse four of chapter 12, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Guess what? Abram was delayed 25 years in Haran. When they left Ur at the call of God, he was stuck there waiting for dad to die or do whatever dad needed to do before ultimately then Abram followed the call of God. I, I, I think about that. Was there something God told me to do 25 years ago that I've yet to do? Was there something God told me to do two and a half weeks ago that I've yet to do? I wonder if Jesus had this whole thing in mind, this whole settling, this whole, man, if a dad gets in the way or a family member and you start to follow along their direction, that perhaps there's gonna be some delay in the blessings of God in our lives. Listen to this in Luke chapter nine. Actually, go ahead and turn there. Turn to Luke chapter nine. Join me there. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Third of the four gospels. Not too tough to find. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. We were here just Wednesday night, so some of your Bibles may already be creased. Luke 9, 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Have you ever said that? Oh, Lord, I'll follow you. I remember, man, when in youth ministry, we often had opportunities for for teenagers to make life commitments to God. Either giving their lives to Jesus for the first time or sometimes just to make a commitment to follow in ministry. I remember at a, at a big conference one time, a Christ in Youth conference, that we had a bunch of kids go forward. And, and one of the calls that was put out to these kids was if you wanna commit your life to ministry, come forward. And you have all these kids go forward and I wonder how many are in ministry today. Oh Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, well, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, don't think that we're gonna go find a nice comfy house and just chill. We're gonna be going. You're gonna be on your feet. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And to another also he said, I will, or another had said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now quickly understand with these three individual cases, Jesus is dealing with three different people. And that's what he does. He deals with us, he talks to us the way we need to be talked to. He knows where you are. He knows where I am. He's gonna say something different to you than he's gonna say to me because he's so personal. And so each one of these situations are slightly different in the nuance of how he talks to these people. But I read these verses and I think, okay, well, foxholes and birds' nests, that's a fair warning. You know, that's well said, Jesus. After all, it is a call to sojourning, so that's legit. And the picture of the plow there in verse 62, that, that's poignant, it's illustrative, so you, you get a sense of, yeah, he, he wants people who are committed to go forward, but verse 60 is a little harsh, Lord. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. 
excuse me? Allow that. Does that strike you as a little harsh? I want to follow you, Lord Jesus, but I've got, a, I've got a memorial service I have to get to. Let the dead bury their own dead. Listen, how many of you started well only to be hindered by dead family? I don't mean to be offensive. But the implication is much more than natural here. It is spiritual family who have settled to live and die for this life only can be a real drag on someone who's trying to follow Jesus. And what does he say? Let the dead bury their own dead. And again, he's not being harsh. There's not a harsh bone in Jesus' body. But the walking dead in our families, those who have put off or rejected Jesus entirely. And we get together with them in the holidays or different times of the year. And when we're around them, not a word about Jesus. Or perhaps because of them, well, I really can't get involved in that ministry or, 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 or do this thing that I know the Lord's calling me to do. I'm gonna wait until after Terok dies before I go to the promise. And, and we do this. Paul says in Galatians 5, 7, to the Jewish people, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who's your terach? Who's the dad you're following rather than the father who's called you? And Paul even says in Galatians 5, 8, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. By the way, terach, whose name means hindered or delay or wanderer, he takes them up to Haran. You know what Haran means? couple of uh, definitions. It can mean hill country, mountain region. It can also mean dry or desolate. So Abram was delayed in a dry, desolate, out-of-the-way place. That's what happens to faith when we follow a man or a relative, even a dad, rather than following God. It's a tough choice, brothers and sisters. It's a hard choice to say, I have a parent, I have a family member, I have a dear friend who is utterly opposed to Jesus. And if I follow Jesus, I'm walking away. Oh, oh, not in terms of prayer, not in terms of loving them, not in terms of compassion and always wanting to bring the gospel to those we know and we love, but to allow a family member to hinder your promises. That's what happened with Abram. Don't let that happen to you. You love Jesus, you follow him at all costs, at every cost, you put him first. You know what's not in this story back with Abram? And I find it fascinating that though he was delayed for 25 years, though God called him in Ur and he goes up to Haran, wrong direction, stays there, settles in, 25 more years go by. Though all of that happens, there is not a single negative from God. There's no pressure, there's no rebuke from the Lord. He just waits. You don't even really hear it in the story. I mean, you have to kind of look at these verses and piece it together to realize that there was this long pause from the original call to when Abram finally went into the land. And the whole time you don't get, Abram, I will rebuke thee for thy faithlessness. You get nothing. He goes up to Haran and God's like, okay waits and he waits and he waits and Isaiah 30, 18 says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you 
And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. And when we put him off, you know what I know about Jesus? He waits. He waits. But ironically, if you think you're waiting on the Lord to move, more likely he's patiently waiting for you to heed his call. He's waiting for you to get up and go. Lord, show me something. Well, I, I, I told you back in Ur. It's a great name because that's, you know, how many people just stay even in Ur? I want you to go, Ur. Well, I'll go this far. I'm not going to go all the way with what I think God, but I'll go this far, and I'm going to, this is, this is good, right, God? This is good. Comfy, cozy. He waits. He makes the call. And then he waits for us to follow through. Go forth. Just go forth. Verse 2, the second imperative here is, and so you shall be a blessing, which doesn't sound like an imperative, but it is in the Hebrew because it's literally, be you a blessing. It's the imperative form. So he says two things. Go forth, and he says, be a blessing. Be you a blessing. In your going forth, go forth to be a blessing. Lamentations 3.22 says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. So listen, if his mercies are new every morning, you know what that means? That means every single day I can go out fresh and new to be a blessing to someone else. I wake up with fresh mercies. So I don't have to worry about spending the day making myself good enough for God. I can just go be a blessing. I can go bless and encourage and love another person. Be you a blessing. Verse three then follows up the second imperative with more promises. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, I couldn't bless all the families of the earth. Can you bless one person? And then the next day, can you bless another and then bless another person. And bless. It's the starfish story. Have you heard the starfish story? This is one of those often preached stories. Perhaps you've heard it before. A little boy on a beach, starfish everywhere, stranded on the sand. And he's picking up starfish and chucking them out into the water. And an old man comes up and says, what are you doing? I'm saving the starfish. And the old man looks up the beach and says, there's no way you're going to save or make any kind of difference for all these starfish. The little boy looked at him and picked up a starfish and threw it into the sea and said, made a difference for that one. (laughs) Be a blessing. Be a blessing, even if just for one person. Can you imagine if tomorrow morning we all woke up to be a blessing, we go out into the area here, do you realize how many people would be blessed in the name of Jesus if all of us blessed one person tomorrow? And that's the imperative. Be a blessing. Be a blessing. And the good news is you're gonna be Blessed back. I will bless those who bless you. Hey, so I'm going to bless and God's going to bless them and and they're going to bless me so they get another blessing. It's blessing everywhere. 
And the one who curses you, I will curse. So more good news, be a blessing, and you're going to get cursed. Wait a minute. Be a blessing. I, I will curse. Listen, listen. When I go forth to be a blessing in the name of the Lord, I don't have to worry about the return. I don't have to worry if someone's going to bless me back or curse me for it. Whether I'm blessed or cursed in response, God's got me. He's got it either way. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. So I don't have to worry about it. All I have to do is bless. That's my job. I go forth and I bless. I can remember that, Doug. How do you do the whole Christian thing? Go forth and be a blessing. Go forth and be a blessing. Say that with me. Go forth and be a blessing. There's your, there's your challenge for the week. Go forth and be a blessing. It's not go forth and be a jerk. <laughs> go forth and be an idiot or go forth and be heavy-handed or go forth and go for yourself. No, go forth and be a blessing. God's got it. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. By the way, no family has ever been more blessed or more cursed than the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jewish people in all history, and I stand on both of these, I can make a strong case, they are the most blessed people in all of history, the most gifted, the most intelligent, the most artistic, the most, I mean, the Jewish people are a blessed people. Just inherently, when God chooses you, he doesn't choose you and walk away. And they have been incredibly blessed as a people and incredibly cursed. No people in the history of the world have suffered under more curse than the Jewish people. And so we see this actually coming to fruition. Remember that all of these promises, while they apply to people of faith in the same God as the God of Abraham, these are promises first and foremost to Israel, and perhaps we'll talk a little more about that Wednesday night. But this promise to one man also goes out to all tribes and tongues and nations, and God here reaffirms it when he says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he's going to repeat it several times. Uh, to Abraham in Genesis twenty two eighteen. 18, he says again, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obey obeyed my voice. How did he obey his voice? Go forth and be a blessing. And Abram did that. And then through Isaac, Genesis 26, verse 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, by your seed. Now it's Isaac. Isaac, by your seed, all the nations of the world, of the earth, will be blessed. Boy, it would be really nice if that, if that trailed all the way down to Jacob. Genesis 28, 14, in your seed, God says to Jacob, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed 
because you have obeyed my voice. It is not through Abraham, through Ishmael, and on out. It is Abraham to Isaac to Jacob that this promised blessing will reach all the nations of the world. 4,000 years ago, God seeded the promise of Messiah through his friend Abraham. Galatians 3.16 tells us the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And note that. Paul points this out. It's great to know. Every time you see that word seed, it's Zara in the Hebrew. Every time you see seed, it's in the singular. In your seed, singular, Abraham. In your seed, singular, Isaac. In, get this, in your seed, singular, Jacob. Well, Jacob had how many sons? 13 in all. Well, 12, and then there's, you know, Joseph's kids. We'll get into that. One seed. He doesn't say in your seeds, Jacob. The whole earth's going to be, no, one, because one would come. One seed, that proto-evangelicum, the seed of woman, the original seed promised back in the garden in the curse against the serpent. One seed is going to bless the world. It is Messiah. Paul says the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to his seeds as to many, but to one and to your seed. That is, Paul says, Christ. Jesus Christ, through whom, whom now the whole entire world can be, may be blessed and Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends. What if you do what I command you? Oh, so we got to prove it? No. No, no. You are my friends if you, if you do what I command. I mean, it's proof positive, yes, that we are his friends because we do what he says. Well, what is he commanding? Same two imperatives. Go forth and be a blessing. In the context, when Jesus says, if you do what I command, and the whole command of the whole teaching there is love, love, do that. You're my friends. Go forth and be a blessing, and you are my friends. And so, Genesis 12, 4, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haram. You know what? Abram didn't have ways. He didn't have Google Maps. He didn't have GPS. He didn't have a AAA triptych. In fact, you could say Abram didn't have a clue. What did God say? He said, go forth into a land which I will show you. Go forth to the way that I will show you. Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. But God did. He always does. Father, we pray that you would lead us out. Lord, for some of us, it's just out the door and into the community this week. Going out is, is, is very close, Lord. It's not going to some distant land. It's just going in the name of Jesus. For some of us and, and for others, Lord, there is a call that is, that is beyond the borders of Oak Harbor or Anacortes or Coopville. 
Bow or Edison or Mount Vernon, there's a call that's further, Lord. You alone know where you're taking us. We don't always know. In fact, Jesus, I'm, I'm reminded of your promise that the wind blows wherever it pleases. So it is with someone who is born of the Spirit. And so our job, Lord, is not to know where we're going. Our job is to know that you know and to trust you. So I pray, whatever this means, Lord, and you're gonna have to make the application here, but whatever this means to each person here today, Lord, would you help us to go forth and be a blessing? We thank you for your word to us. And we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.